Okay, welcome back everyone. Um, after our short break, we're now changing gears from the SEC and asset management with Commissioner Ueda to talking about ESG and systemic risk. Um, this panel is moderated by Politico's Victoria Guida, and I'm going to hand the mic over to Victoria. Thank you all for, for joining us. Uh, we have an excellent panel here of people who think very deeply about these issues. Um, to my left, we have Jeremy Kress, who is um, the Assistant Professor of Business Law at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Uh, then we have Paul Kupiak, who is a Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And then, um, last but not least, we have Christina Perijon Skinner, who is Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I want to give as much time as possible to the actual discussion, so um, we're going to have each of the panelists do some opening remarks, um, have a short discussion, and then um, we will be taking questions from the audience. And uh, for those of you who are online, you can submit questions via Cato's webpage, Facebook, and YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoEcon. Um, so with that, I will uh, turn it over to Christina to start us off. All right, thank you, Victoria. And thanks so much to the organizers here at Cato for putting together a day full of topics on a subject that is so top of mind for academics, policymakers, market participants. It's really great to be here. So I wanna focus my opening remarks on the implications for the democratic process that follow from linking the concept of systemic risk to the concept of ESG. And specifically, I wanna talk about the risk that introducing a connection between ESG and systemic risk conveys incredible power to bank and markets regulators to expand their jurisdiction regardless of what Congress does or says. So big picture, these are two terms that don't have a coherent or a stable definition. And the result of that being that inflating these terms or blending them together can aggrandize regulators' power. So for quite some time now, we've heard bank regulators bandy about the term financial stability risk in connection with the E in particular in ESG. And if what bank regulators want to do is to use their regulatory and supervisory tools to incentivize or compel banks to do something about climate change, well, there's no better way to do that than to characterize climate change as a financial stability risk. That's really the key that is going to unlock so many doors. So I want to walk through three key examples with you now. So first, consider the Fed. It's difficult to say that the central bank doesn't have something to do with financial stability in the banking sector. Of course it does. But this can't mean that the Fed has infinite ability to identify and act on what it describes as a financial stability risk. After all, Congress declined to give the Fed a financial stability mandate when it passed the Dodd-Frank Act. And that should at least tell us something about the limits of the Fed's power in this respect. But so far, characterizing climate change as a financial stability risk has allowed the Fed to start to think about and use its microprudential tools of bank supervision. So these are supervisory ratings, assessment about banks' underwriting and asset allocations, and moral suasion, of course. And also to think about using macroprudential tools like scenario analysis that really shift incentives for banks. Now, climate change as a financial stability risk could also give the Fed some footing to argue that it should increase capital requirements for banks vis-a-vis -vis certain kinds of 
brown assets. Okay, so now let's think about the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC. So monitoring for emerging nascent financial stability risks, well, that is the FSOC's congressionally assigned job. But again, we still don't have a clear or bounded definition of what a financial stability risk is, and there are major regulatory implications that follow from an FSOC determination that something is a financial stability risk. So for an institution that the FSOC determines to be systemically risky, well, it can, if it wants to, regulate that institution like a bank, where an activity like, for example, investing in brown credit assets to be determined to be systemically risky, well, then that gives the FSOC the footing to recommend to primary bank and markets regulators to do something about that risk, to take some action. And in the case of climate, the FSOC has been active in pressing the regulators to think about how to refit their supervisory tools to engage industry participants on climate risk. So finally, let's think about the SEC. Now, the SEC doesn't have a financial stability mandate, but it can require disclosures or make decisions about liability for public companies based on what would be material to a reasonable investor. And if financial regulators say that engaging in business practices that fuel climate change is a systemic risk, well, that's a very neat storyline to describing why some piece of information about some climate activity would be material to a reasonable investor. So what is the problem with this state of play. Now, to wrap up, I want to draw attention to two main points. The first is about accountability, and the second is about independence. So regarding accountability, the attempt to define climate or anything else under the heading of ESG as a, as a financial stability risk is ultimately a path to end running Congress and expanding a bank regulator's own mandate. Now, this is a really slippery slope. There are many things that can be a financial stability risk. So the question is, where do we allow regulators to draw the line? When financial regulators have carte blanche to define the scope of their own mandates, that can present problems for the legitimacy of the regulatory action and also for its breadth. Now, second, regarding independence, we should appreciate that the president can make decisions about what he thinks is a financial stability risk, and through the Treasury Secretary, who helms the FSOC, can then influence the financial regulatory agencies, which are supposed to be independent of the executive branch's economic agenda. So to conclude, although addressing systemic risk is incredibly important, it's equally important to reflect on the big picture fact that making a factual determination that not advancing some ESG goals is tantamount to fueling systemic risk essentially becomes a legal fate accompli, a mechanism for expanding bank regulators' authority over an important yet still contentious issue that really should be further worked out by Congress. Thank you. Thanks so much, Christina. Um, next, we'll turn to Jeremy. Thanks, Victoria, and thank you uh, for having me at uh, this conversation. I want to do uh, two things in my opening remarks today. First, um, I will disclose a little bit about my biases through which I uh, approach these issues. Uh, and then I will make uh, the base case for why climate risk is something that financial regulators should pay attention to in addressing their uh, systemic risk responsibilities. So first of all, uh, my biases. When I look at the steps that financial regulators have taken to address climate risks in the financial system, I do not see financial regulators trying to allocate capital. I do not see financial regulators getting out of their lanes. I do not see financial regulators trying to 
cut off funding to a particular industry or set of industries. What I see when I look at what financial regulators are doing is financial regulators doing their jobs. Right? That is uh, ensuring safety and soundness of individual financial institutions uh, and the safety and soundness of the financial system more broadly. So with that disclosure out of the way, um, let me just make the base case for why I think climate financial risk is something that financial regulators should rightly pay attention to. Uh, two types of risks that could manifest uh, for borrowers and for uh, the financial institutions that serve them. The first is physical risk. Right? Physical risk is the risk of acute or chronic uh, weather disasters that affect uh, borrowers uh, or companies uh, that borrow from financial institutions. Right? So this could be flooding, it could be hurricanes, it could be droughts, it could be chronic sea level rise uh, that calls into the question the creditworthiness of uh, some borrowers. Second type of risks uh, is transition risk. This is uh, changes in consumer behavior or changes in government policy in response to climate change. So you could imagine consumers no longer want to live in coastal areas anymore as a result of chronic sea level rise. Uh, the banks that hold those mortgages uh, in coastal areas uh, may take losses on those properties. So that's physical risk, transition risk. Uh, these risks are real and they are economically meaningful. Right? We know they're economically meaningful because markets react to them. Right? Uh, you know, looking at bond yields, for example, for companies and countries that are highly exposed to climate risk, depending on which of the academic studies you look at, uh, bond spreads are 100 to 200 basis points higher for issuers that are highly exposed to physical or transition risks. Credit rating agencies also respond to physical and transition risks. All three of the ma major credit rating agencies have downgraded issuers on the basis of their exposure to physical and transition risks. So physical and transition risks uh, are real, uh, and there's a reason to be concerned that banks and other financial institutions do not appropriately internalize those risks. Right? We know that banks and other financial companies benefit from a whole host of implicit and explicit government backing, including uh, subsidized deposit insurance. As a result, we think that financial institutions don't always internalize all of the risks they're taking. And I think that risk uh, of moral hazard is particularly acute in the climate context because if the worst case climate scenarios materialize, I think it's fairly likely that the private sector won't have to bear all of those costs, those costs may be offloaded onto the public sector. So that is uh, the very brief overview of how I approach these issues uh, as a first cut. I'm sure we'll have time to discuss and debate potential policy responses, uh, but for now, happy to pass the mic. <laughs> Great, and uh, you pass the mic over to, to Paul. Uh, thank you, thank you, Victoria, and um, thank Cato for inviting me to be a part of this panel. I'm going to uh, organize my opening remarks uh, around a question that the organizers asked the panelists um, when we met to plan for this meeting. Could, could we explain the relationship between ESG and systemic risk? And so I'm gonna 
I'm gonna try to do that. So E, you might already realize, signifies environmental issues, climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, pollution, et cetera. S signifies social issues, firms, management's efforts to account for human interdependencies. Relevant issues under, this, under S include managing company relationships with all internal and external stakeholders, recognition of the firm's overall community impact, prioritizing gender and diversity inclusion, G signifies firm governance, companies' policies regarding race, gen gender, and other aspects of the composition of its board of directors and employees, appropriate hiring and firing policies, executive compensation policies, and policies related to the company's lobbying and political contributions. Now, the S and G terms, as we've already uh, heard this morning, are not particularly well-defined. That is not really just my opinion. It's a fact you can verify by looking at all the descriptions of the ES and G all across the, uh, the you know, internet uh, on, the, by, on the ESG expert websites. You'll get different definitions on every one of them. And the ES and G uh, issues I just said to you are not my op opinions. They come from looking at various web those websites of the ESG experts. ESG, S and G compliance are graded on a highly malleable scales, which have over the past three decades widened to include the current issues championed by activist investor clientels. What exactly qualify as appropriate S and G policies are dependent on the values and preferences of the evaluator. This seems pretty problematic to me, to say the least. No longer activist investors focus on punishing big tobacco or defense contractors as they were in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Today, activists are, con are, are concerned with forcing corporations to adopt their preferences when it comes to hiring policies, layoff and pay practices, policies in the race, gender, and ethnic diversity, composition of their boards of directors and employees, and to actively lobby for controversial legislation supported by activist investors on topics related to abortion, school choice, LGBTQ plus rights, among other issues. I think you've all seen that in the news over the past year. Active investors began uh, focusing on E probably about 1962 with the pub pub publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Uh, the movement matured during the 60s, and by 1970, we had the first Earth Day and the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. Richard Nixon signed that law in December 1970. In the last decade or so, environmental crusaders against GHG-emitting companies have, have, have been amplified. The crusade has been amplified by billionaires who frequent Davos World Forum meetings in their private jets. Activist ideologues convinced the UN that climate change activism could be used as a cudgel to extract hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in climate change reparations from advanced Western nations. Never a group to ignore a profitable grift, UN officials formed climate change committees that argued for global corporate GHG measurement and disclosure standards and for taxing developed Western nations to fund less developed countries transition to green energy and compensate them for global warming extreme weather events allegedly caused by rich nations' use of fossil fuels. And you've probably watched the news in the last few days as our president has pledged hundreds of millions of dollars of our taxpayer money to various, uh, various climate change UN initiatives at the COP27 or whatever it's called. To date, the E of ESG is the only component that's allegedly been linked to financial sector systemic risk. 
not only by activist investors, but by activist financial regulators in the United States, as Christine has already spoken about, and by activist regulators in Europe. But the solutions championed by these activists imposing new regulations to make it difficult for GHG intensive companies to access capital ignore the impacts these solutions will likely have in creating systemic risk in the S component of ESG, the social component. Over the past hundred years, fossil fuels have provided an affordable, reliable energy supply, at least until the last year, and the petrochemicals, plastics, and fertilizers used in modern agriculture and in so many modern consumer products and life-saving medical devices, you know, like the, um, like the valve that you know, fixed my wife's uh, heart, you know, uh, a couple of years ago. It's not an overstatement to say that fossil fuels and their derivative products are perhaps the single most important driver of the massive improvements in the standard of living enjoyed by billions of people living in developed and to a lesser degree developing economies. In other words, the social benefits, the S associated with fossil fuels are enormous. Without fossil fuels, we would not have experienced the industrialization, technological innovation, and specialization of labor that had driven productivity gains in modern economies. While pollution has been an issue, there has been tremendous progress on pollution abatement in my own lifetime, and I see no reason why this won't continue. Ignoring the tangible, socially valuable, positive externalities afforded by fossil fuels is short-sighted in the extreme. Restricting GSG intensive companies' access to capital will have huge ne negative implications for the S component of ESG. So we have systemic, we have the systemic risk, the response to supposed systemic risk in E, going to spark huge systemic risk in S. Indeed, without affordable, reliable substitutes, choking off fossil fuel supplies, using financial regulations, will impose massive reductions in our standard of living, as we're already beginning to see today in the US and Europe not to mention the spike in inflation. Adopting un unwarranted policies that treat E as an existential threat will create enormous systemic risk in the S component of ESG. And I'm happy to go back and talk about extreme weather in the questions that follow, but thank you very much. Thanks so much. Um, great table setting there by the three of you. And, um, you know, jumping off of Paul's remarks, I, it, it does seem like the bulk of our discussion is going to be on, on the climate front. But before we uh, dig a little deeper into that, I did want to focus a bit on the S and the G. Um, you know, it, as, as Paul suggested, this hasn't really been as much of a focus in terms of, of, of the U.S. financial regulators. But I, I wanted to ask, uh, Jeremy, I'll start with you. Um, do you think that there are S and the G issues, um, you know, whether connected to E or not, um, that pose systemic risk issues? So I think, uh, Victoria, it's, um, they're all kind of related, right? And in fact, there's um, a, a growing literature that connects stronger scores on ESG metrics of financial institutions with lower overall systemic risk. So, and recognizing some of the limitations of this ESG scoring that Commissioner Ueda and Paul brought up, uh, but there are reputable studies. I wrote down uh, Chia Ramante et al., Avoye et al., Caroline Bax et al., all finding correlations between banks' ESG scores and their contributions to systemic risk, right? The, the, the better they perform on ESG, the lower their contribution to systemic risk using various systemic risk metrics like S-risk and uh, conditional value at risk. Uh, so quoting from Chia Ramante, 
when considering aggregated ESG scores, engagement in corporate social responsibility practices is associated with higher stability, i.e. lower default risk during crisis. It also seems to encourage more prudent banking activities, fostering more stable relationships with the financial community and enhancing reputation. I think that the G factor um, you know, is something that bank regulators have recognized for a long time is relevant to systemic risk, right? That's why management is one of the primary components that supervisors look at when evaluating banks' annual supervisory ratings. That's why the Dodd-Frank Act required large bank holding companies to establish risk management committees. That's why the Dodd-Frank Act uh, required the regulators to issue rules about incentive compensation. Those rules, of course, still are not finished. Uh, but I think, um, you know, there, there is that growing body of literature, and then the, the fact that governance has been central to how financial regulators have thought about systemic risk uh, for decades uh, does suggest that there is a connection. Yeah, so Christina, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you on this. Um, you know, do you think that the the governance and the management, like, you know, the, the G and ESG, is that the same as sort of the management issues that we think of as having, uh, you know, broader safety and soundness and financial stability concerns? Yeah, great, great question, and I'm really glad that Paul touched on this as well. To, so to answer your question directly, I think governance is incredibly important from a macro perspective also. So some of my very early work sort of looked at the relationship between bank culture and sort of general health in the financial system. That being said, you know, consistent with my earlier remarks, I don't think that means that we need to give regulators new tools to deal with governance issues in banks and other financial firms. There's, there are existing laws and frameworks that are meant to help regulators sort of get at the E question. But I think one of the biggest or most unfortunate aspects of the ESG conversation today it is, is that it is really sidelined important conversations that were going on about governance. So after the financial crisis, there was a lot of attention in the banking industry, for example, to thinking about norms and culture that led to some very productive industry innovation and thinking about uh, ways to better align incentives, ways to improve accountability, right? And all of this conversation was sort of iterative between regulators and the industry, but uh, was not, you know, packaged in the ESG framework that we have today was just sort of something that the industry had evolved on its own in response to, you know, more or less rising attention to the issue. And, and environmental issues could have gone that way too, where we sort of let the industry innovate to try and deal with the environment as well. But ESG, I think, thinks about governance in, in a totally different way. And if you go back to the original way that Kofi Annan and others at the UN talked about ESG, they really thought of the G as sort of a way just to elevate or effectuate the E and the S. And so that's more or less what's happened. We haven't been having these separate conversations about good governance and firms, which is good for everyone, but rather we've just been thinking about, you know, to the extent we talk about G, how can we use it to make those E goals happen, happen better? Uh, let me take a crack at this. I think I'm maybe the only one on stage here who actually was an examiner in large banks. I mean, I, I went been on large bank exams when I was at the FDIC, in fact, uh, the biggest shops. Um, we didn't worry about ESG stuff. We worried about exposures and models. In fact, there are studies by the New York Fed 
uh, and multiple studies that show that banks actually ha handle climate events like hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, very well, they come out. They lose a little bit in the short run because loans, loans default or some of them default, but they make money up in the years after because they have to rebuild. They, they, they loan money to rebuild. So the Federal Reserve studies itself shows that extreme weather events are, are not a risk to well-managed banks. In fact, I was at the FDIC during Katrina. There isn't a bank in Louisiana that failed with Katrina. Some of them got bought up later on, but there was one, wasn't one bank failure out of Katrina. Katrina. Katrina shut the whole place down for quite a while, as you might remember. So uh, they, banks, banks do pretty, they can, they can uh, survive events pretty well. They, we, have, we have flood insurance, mandatory flood insurance on any, any mortgage made by a bank, because a bank's federally insured. All of them, you all have, if you're, if you're in floodplain, you have to buy flood insurance. Uh, earthquake insurance, if you're in California, banks mandate that. It's not like banks don't understand environmental problems and risk manage them. And the tools are, are available to them and they use them. So I think this is, you know, safety and soundness, this is a lot of hooey. Uh, climate change, banks can manage it. I, I, I think if you ask Jamie Dimon, he would not be worried about uh, extreme weather events affecting J.P. Morgan Chase. I, I just don't think that's true. And I, I can also say the, the whole issue about um, you know, coastal building and all that, I get probably three, three uh, phone calls and postcards a week wanting to buy my house in Bethany Beach, you know, right? You know, nobody seems to be very scared about it floating away. Uh, and um, I can tell you many other people have that same. I think the price appreciation in Florida along the coast was higher pretty much than most any other place in the nation over the last few years. So. Uh, I think I think the people vote with their feet, and I think the people um, people are not really uh, particularly concerned about this. If you're in Florida, you pay high you have to pay high flood insurance rates. Uh, if you're at the beach, you have to pay flood insurance rates or or pay for it yourself, the whole house yourself, and not have a mortgage. I mean, there there are things in place. So I I really uh, discount these uh, these stories, and I think that's what they are stories. If I could just. Uh we veered from S and G back to E, but I, I just I'm, I knew it would happen. I, I'm familiar <laughs> uh, with the New York Fed study that Paul cited, and I, I just want to point out some limitations of that study that the authors themselves acknowledge. Um, that study, of course, was based only on uh, physical risks, not transition risks. Uh, the study was based on historical data, does not take into account future climate projections, uh, and uh, the study only looked at acute events uh, did not take into account uh, potential chronic changes like sea level rise or drought. Uh, so I, I, I take the study for what it's worth, uh, but I just think some context uh, is important. So, so, what, so what, I, losses, what losses are associated with transitional risk? Has there been ever a transitional risk? It's completely in your mind. It's hypothetical. It doesn't exist. There are no losses. So can I, can I just jump in here? Because um, you know the, the Financial Stability Oversight Council has identified climate change as an emerging risk, um, which I think is is in sort of a, an interesting way of, of posturing it, right, which is basically like climate change is not currently a financial stability risk. It's an emerging risk. And so um, I wanted to, to uh, <laughs> maybe take a little bit of the heat off Jeremy up here um, and, and, and ask, the, you know, uh, uh, Paul and, and uh, Christina, um, you know, we've seen, for example, wildfires in the West, right? So, uh, you know, I think that if there's if there's anything that I've sort of uh, been reinforced with lately, it's that we have no idea what's going to happen in the world. And so let's I'll, I'll pose something you know 
sort of extreme, right? Like let's say, you know, the entire western half of the country is on fire. Does that pose a financial stability risk? Um, yeah, I mean, you're, it, it, no, because it's not gonna happen. You, if you actually go to the data from NOAA, there's no trend in the number of hot days between 1895 and 2017. 11 of the 12 years with the highest number of days occurred before, these are facts, before 1916. U.S. tornado activity shows no trend or a downward trend since 1954. Tropical storms, hurricanes, and accumulated cyclone energy so show little trend since science si satellite measurements began in the early 1970s. Does that mean losses couldn't be bigger because we there's you know cities are bigger, poor people live near the coast? No, losses could be bigger, but there's no there's no evidence that hurricanes or or their energy uh, is getting any worse. Here's, here's the one you just asked about. The number of U.S. wildfires shows no trend since 1985, and the global acreage burned has declined over the past decades. I can send you the sites for all these if you want. The Palmer Drought Severity Index shows no trend since 1895. U.S. flooding over the past century is uncorrelated with increasing greenhouse gas concentrations. And there's, there's all kinds of other data out there. So this whole notion that extreme weather events are just, it's, you know, it's about, we're about to have biblical plagues. I mean, this is really, really overplayed. So, yeah, I think if you really grapple concretely with the facts of, sort of facts in the way that Paul just cited, and also the facts of how banks work and what their balance sheets look like, it's really difficult to say that climate change is a financial stability risk right now. And that's because, you know, to the extent we do have a definition of what financial stability risk is, the one that we were sort of operating on when Dodd-Frank was passed and thereafter, means that there's some threat to the solvency of a big bank's balance sheet that if that threat materialized, right, and that bank would come close to insolvency, right? Some kind of credit risk that's lurking on a big bank's balance sheet. But if you actually examine the balance sheets of the systemically important financial institutions, you can see that their wholesale loan exposures to heavy carbon producing industries, even assuming there was some transition policy that put all of those businesses out of, out of, out of work, right? Or loans to businesses and homes in flood prone areas because banks are so regionally, geographically, sectorally diverse, right, together these loans, you know, they're only one, two, three percent of the big bank's balance sheet, and their equity capital is two, sometimes even three times that amount. And so I'm not surprised at all that the FSOC has to use a little bit of sleight of hand and say that this is an emerging financial stability risk, because they're well aware, no doubt, of the limitations of their own authority and these facts that we've just been discussing. And so if they were to go all in on climate change being a financial stability risk, well, then they set themselves up for some judicial challenge, right? Just like their determination that MetLife was a systemically important financial institution was determined to be arbitrary and capricious. So, uh, Jeremy, I, I do want to turn to you on this. So, um, you know, I, I think you can agree or disagree, but, it, you know, it seems like it, a, a bank hasn't failed um, because of, of uh, severe weather events. And so I'm curious whether you think that, um, you know, you, you outlined physical and transition risk, whether things would have to get really markedly worse for us to see that, or, or are, we, are we close to seeing that, um, or, 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 or is, do we have to see sort of like an extreme event, like what I outlined in order to, to really see an uptick? So what is the path to, to systemic risk, right? That, I, I think that's what you're asking. And I, there are two scenarios that I would worry about uh, if I were sitting in one of the regulatory agencies today. Uh, the first would be the failure of a 
large systemically important institution by definition. Uh, as you can imagine, JP Morgan um, taking a large hit on their oil and gas loan book, uh, recognize, recognizing that that loan book itself may be not enough to trigger insolvency, but I think if a hit is big enough and it brings a big bank close to even the adequately capitalized level, that could be enough to trigger a, a downward spiral. Uh, so that's credit risk, uh, but you also may worry about market risk. Let's say JP Morgan had a big energy derivative book that took a hit, uh, or operational risk, right? A, a weather event causes a catastrophic systems outage for JP Morgan that uh, triggers uh, distress. Um, so that's kind of scenario one, right? The, the failure of a firm that's by definition systemic. Uh, and then scenario two would be uh, the simultaneous or, or near simultaneous failure of hundreds of smaller firms uh, that are less geographically diversified, uh, but you could imagine um, dozens of banks in uh, the Plains area, for example, that have lots of oil and gas exposures. Um, that scenario could mimic the SNL crisis uh, from, from the 1980s where uh, many, many smaller firms fail simultaneously and create systemic risk. Yeah, well, and, and just to just to stay with you for a second, um, you know, it, it, it seems like, you know, a financial stability risk could theoretically come from a lot of different things, right? It could come from nuclear war. It could come from a pandemic. Um, it could it could come from, you know, uh, I, I guess some sort of ca catastrophic um, climate event. Um, and, the, you know, this is a question of sort of like black swan events and, and tail risks and all of that. So do you think, um, you know, we'll start with you and we can kind of go down the line here. Do you think that climate is something that sort of uh, warrants special attention versus, you know, just making sure that a bank is prepared for any catastrophic event? No, I, I think uh, climate is one of many risks that financial regulators ought to be worried about. And uh, frankly, I would be less worried about climate specifically if I were confident that the banking system on the whole were sufficiently well capitalized to absorb all of the tail risks that you mentioned. Uh, but when uh, I look at the data, the best data that I've seen suggests that if we are in the optimal range of bank capital, we are at the very, very low end of that. I, I think if we were more comfortably within the socially optimal range of bank capital, then I would be less worried about climate change uh, as an individual risk. So I think if you uh, were to honestly uh, say what the biggest systemic risk right now is, it's the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. Now, they, they have to raise interest rates to control inflation. That's true. It's their job. But they're, but with all interest rates have been near zero for, for more than for a dozen years or more, uh, and all the QE ha has caused bubbles all over the place, all over the world, and the Fed raising interest rates, that's, that's what's going to squeeze out the marginal bank or country or many countries as they face uh, exchange rate uh, pressures. This right now it is the, should be the biggest financial worry. It's the Federal Reserve. It's not ESG. It's not climate change. Uh, I think if you, I, I don't see how if you even read the newspapers or watch what's going on, you could think differently. 
So I think the answer to how bank regulators, how the Fed should deal with tail risk is, is pretty simple. I mean, m many, most of the provisions in the Federal Reserve Act, the discount window, emergency liquidity facilities, right, all of these instruments of monetary policy are generally agnostic as to the cause of a shock, right? Doesn't really matter what causes instability in the economy. The Fed has a range of tools at its disposal to help the financial system weather that storm. And the same should be true of its approach to dealing with tail risk, right? So as long as the banking sector is adequately capitalized to all types of exogenous risk, whether that's climate, nuclear, pandemic, inflation, what have you, then bank regulators have done their job and they shouldn't be doing anything else. And I think Jeremy and I may disagree about what adequate capitalization might mean, but the principle holds true. For bank regulators to do something more than that, I think is an effort to engage in capital allocation to try and affect the flow of capital from banks. We were talking about asset managers before and their effort to affect the flow of capital. So I, I do want to remind people that we're going to be taking questions soon. So, uh, you know, be, be thinking of, of you know, what, anything else that you want to add to this conversation. Um, we're, I feel like we're, we're almost just getting started here. <laughs> um, so I, I, I do want to ask uh, a, a sort of a weedsier question, which is, you know, for the, for the largest institutions, they're required to come up with, with resolution plans for, you know, what would happen in the event of failure. Um, and they're, you know, we sort of have stress testing, um, which obviously we're, the regulators are doing sort of a, um, a, a stress test light for, for climate, they're doing climate scenario analysis. So I'm curious, uh, you know, it's kind of, we'll see the, with the ideological distribution up here, I, I'll be interested to hear what, what Paul and Christina's answer is. Uh, but like, you know, what do you think regulators should do next on this front? Um, and and, and uh, maybe more to what, Paul and Christina might think, you know, what is the worst thing that they could do on this front? Yeah, so it's kind of funny. I, I have spent probably 20 some years in the Federal Reserve and FDIC writing about capital requirements and working on capital requirements. And I'm not the one worried about in, in, insufficient capital at banks. I mean, the biggest banks in the US, the GSIBs, are the strongest capitalized banks on the planet, the face of the planet. They are. They're, uh, put your money in any, pick a bank, J.P. Morgan. I mean, they're the safest institutions. We've put so many capital requirements in place, uh, stress testing on top of it and all this. I mean, I, it, it's kind of strange that we're coming back thinking that, ca that capital is insufficient at the largest banks. I mean, they're, they're as well capitalized as they've ever been in modern history. Uh, you know, they have huge portfolios of, of uh, you know, basically reserves at the Fed. I mean, it, it's it's quite it's quite shocking if you look at what's happened to them since Dodd Frank. I mean, they don't they don't really do that much lending anymore. The lending's gone all outside the banking system. So, all these regulations that impose higher and higher capital requirements on the banks, you know, push financial activity other places where it's not regulated. So, I mean, I think you need to worry about that too. Uh, and I'll I'll leave it at that. Well, I agree. I think to the extent we're looking for some kind of financial stability risk and a business practice that causes environmental damage, we should be looking at the crypto space, uh, not the banking sector. But um, I will leave that for another day in another conference. I think you asked what 
is the worst thing that regulators can do in sort of the end part of your question. I think the worst thing that the composite of bank and market regulators could do is to really be successful in incentivizing banks and other capital allocators to divest from U.S. oil and gas. I think that's incredibly dangerous from a national security standpoint, and so I think that's the worst thing we could do. Right? We know that demand for fossil fuels is not decreasing, so to the extent we force the production outside of the U.S., to the OPEC states, to Russia, that puts our energy security position in an incredibly perilous place, and giving those sovereigns more geopolitical power is not, I think, a smart strategy. And so what the financial regulators are doing is not happening in a vacuum, and so that's what I, that's what I worry about a lot also. So, you know, if I could just sketch out an agenda for the next two years of the Biden administration, I think, uh, you know, step number one, um, is data collection and analysis, right? Just understanding where we are, I think that's what the Fed is starting to do with its pilot scenario analysis. Um, uh, involving the climate scientists early as well, um, with all due respect to Paul, I think um, getting scientists with an accurate view of climate change in the room uh, is important. Uh, and then identifying what the market failures are, right? Because if they're, is going to be regulations, gotta be in response to a market failure and um, analyzing whether there could be problematic externalities that warrant uh, regulatory or supervisory inter intervention. Uh, and at that point, once you've done that analysis, you can make some decisions about is a lighter touch supervisory approach enough, uh, whether it's non-binding stress tests or uh, risk management guidance. Um, you know, if I could go back and amend my uh, prior answer, even if we had a uh, sufficiently well-capitalized banking system, I think climate risk is still something you would want to look at on the supervisory side, just like supervisors should still ask banks, what's your pandemic pre preparedness plan? What's your nuclear war preparedness plan? I think climate risk should still be on that supervisory uh, differential. Uh, it's possible, though, that the data tells you that light-touch supervision isn't enough, and you might need uh, more uh, prescriptive regulatory intervention in the order of binding capital stress tests or, uh, uh, you know, climate capital rules. Um, and then the other thing that uh, would be on uh, my agenda would be uh, cross-sectional coordination, right, between the banking regulators and non-bank regulators, because it, it would uh, make little sense just to propose uh, and implement bank-only climate rules. The risk would just migrate to the non-bank space, as, as Paul said. Um, and international coordination uh, for the same reason, because climate risk will migrate uh, across borders. Uh, and if I could just uh, answer the question about what's the worst thing that could happen in this space, um, one of the things I worry about is that the U.S. is lagging uh, what international regulators and what standard setting bodies are doing globally, uh, we could end up with a situation where the U.S. becomes the go-to source for uh, financing for climate intensive issuers. Uh, and I worry long term, if the United States doesn't keep pace, uh, that we will become increasingly uh, exposed to climate financial risk. Um, so international coordination needs to remain a priority. Could we, could we talk about the real scientists, you know, those climate change guys? Do you know that the mainstream climate models like the IPCC uh, overestimates the actual temperature trend by a factor of two? 
So, so they're really wrong. They can't predict the actual warming that happened between 1910 and 1945. There was no greenhouse gas uh, emission change in the atmosphere over this period, but we had a lot of warming going on, but the models don't pick any of that up. There's all kinds of other anomalies. You know, given that the government age, and, and scientists in the literature recognize this, their models disagree on what happens. They're all over the place. They're very, just like in stress testing, which you guys seem to think that if the Fed runs a stress test, those numbers must be, must be accurate. Well, there, there's no test for accuracy in any of that. And in these environmental models, they're all simulations. And they're all over the place. The variability you can get in the temperature change is astounding. And, and we're going we're to rely on those to impose new capital standards on, on, on banks and other firms. So, you know, given that the government agencies and the international bodies wholly dedicated to measuring the impact of greenhouse gas emissions, on the, on the climate find the task very daunting, and, and there's a lot of unresolved scientific complexities. We're gonna, we're gonna ask the Federal Reserve, the OCC, and the FDIC to do that, and then further estimate how, how those changes in temperature are gonna affect the, you know, the, the, the loans they make and the default rates. I mean, this is truly astonishing. You really think people can do that? I, I, that's amazing. I guess you've never, never done any econometrics in your life before, because this is just beyond beyond the realm of possibility. So I want to respond to two other points that um, were made just a moment ago. Uh, you know, I think we, so first, you know, looking at Europe and seeing that they've moved further ahead in terms of what their central bank is doing, uh, what they've done in terms of things like creating a European-wide tax, taxonomy, you know, I'm not sure that this is a space in which the Europeans will ultimately be successful and that it's one we should feel bad about lagging lagging behind, so, so to speak, right? I mean, the taxonomy that they've created is almost so complicated it's unlikely to be workable at all. And to the extent it is, it's really going to impede the competitiveness, the agility of European firms. I think that's a real problem, right? I mean, nothing is perfect and there are trade-offs in all public policy. In terms of what the Bank of England is doing, well, they're operating under a very different legal framework than the Federal Reserve does. The Bank of England has to have regard to the government's economic policy. The Federal Reserve, we don't have a mandate telling the Fed that it has to do what Treasury thinks is best in terms of economic policy. The second point I wanna make is that you know, to the extent that issuers flock to the U.S. Uh, for for funding fossil fuel producers, I'm actually happy with that result because I'm very comfortable with the legal framework that we have among our capital markets authorities, the SEC, among bank regulators, and at the EPA. And I'd much rather have fossil fuel production happen here for both geopolitical and safety and soundness reasons than other places in the world. Let's, Paul, let's you want to just keep it short. I think we want yeah, to move let's to the get back, Let's move back to the S and G. So let's think we standardize these uh, e, e things. The whole world should be the same. We've got to, you know, we've got to be in there. Well, what about the S and the G? So do we want to standardize firing policies like they do in France? You know, where you can't lay off people for the longest time and you have to pay them. That way, nobody in France. Corporations don't hire people because they know they can't fire them. It's too expensive. We're going to standardize those too because activist investors, you have to be nice. You have to be nice to those employees. You know, they're, they're stakeholders. What, what about Elon Musk laying off all these people? Boy, he, he wouldn't be able to do that in France. The, I mean, the, and, and 
the, the differences in productivity and growth across the economies, you know, they, they, really, they really matter over time. And I think this whole uh, rush to standardize all these kind of things in E, and then they'll, they'll, the activists will try to get it in S and G too, and uh, good luck getting, getting those G things in China. We'll see how that works out, where equity and diversity and all that kind of stuff. But okay, sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> That's all right, Jeremy, did you want to say, okay. So uh, if anyone in the audience has a question, um, we have a question over here. If you want to just uh, stand up and, and identify yourself and uh, you know, please uh, you yeah, know, you. make uh, it a question. <laughs> yeah, uh, Adam Millsap, uh, Stand Together Trust. Um, I think I know where two of you stand on this question, but I still want to ask it just to bring some more, uh, just to really clarify it. Um, you brought up the point about capitalization, right? So obviously there's a lot of risks that financial institutions face, um, whether it's coastal flooding, but more recently and more salient were war in Ukraine and pandemics. Given that no financial regulators saw either of those things coming, um, it seems like they're really bad at predicting what risks is the most salient, whether it's a five-year period, a 10-year period, certainly a 60-year period, they probably have no idea. Why not just then, if you're concerned about capitalization, why not just push for a stronger capitalization rule and ignore whatever risk may, may cause them to need that and not try to predict it. I'm just confused about that. That seems much simpler and much easier and then you don't have to get into this idea about, oh, they should be focusing on the environment or they should be focusing on pandemics or they should be focusing on wars, which naturally they have scarce resources, not gonna be able to focus on all those things anyway. Um, it just seems more convoluted and, and harder solution. Yeah, I, I don't dispute that. I think if, if uh, you know, uh, we could have a separate discussion about optimal, uh, socially optimal capital levels in the banking system, but I think, uh, you know, uh, we should not expect financial regulators to predict every uh, uh, contingency, just like we shouldn't expect uh, banks to predict every uh, possible risk. So I, I think you've highlighted the importance of having robust capital levels. Um, even if we had those, though, I think it is still appropriate for supervisors to ask questions about uh, what does your climate risk management look like? What does your pandemic risk management look like? What does your uh, war geopolitical risk uh, management look like? Uh, so I think both the capital levels and the supervisory oversight go hand in hand uh, because supervision can't predict everything. It can improve risk management, uh, but at the end of the day, you need the equity buffer uh, for the unforeseen risks as well. Um, we also have a question um, online for Christina specifically, um, which is, can you speak to the role of the Fed in addressing systemic financial risk versus addressing externalities and whether the Fed should play a role in quantifying systemic risk from externalities? So systemic risk is a kind of externality, right? So there are a number of, you know, classic law and economics thinking will sort of say regulators have a prima facie justification for intervening in markets to the extent we can identify an externality and the private sector isn't really able to fix that, right? And an externality is basically any cost that isn't being wholly internalized by the firm, right? So you know, by definition, systemic risk, right, a risk that affects the entire financial system and then potentially trickles into the real economy, well, that's a classic kind of externality. So after 2010, when the Fed shifted more into thinking about these financial stability, macro prudential, systemic risk, these words all mean the same thing, when it shifted into that space more, you know, it sort of started to increase the ambit of things it looked for as a systemic risk. And, you know, especially right after the crisis, there was, you know, I sort of 
alluded to this in my opening remarks, right? There was a lots. There were lots of conversations about. Oh, there's this thing called systemic risk. We need to look for it. You know, is it misconduct? Is it executive compensation? Is it this? Is it that? Right? And then soon thereafter, the question about climate as a systemic risk really took hold of that conversation. So, to the extent that the Fed has macroprudential authority, right, to do certain things like stress testing. Right, I mean that's the that's the place in which it would be thinking about what kinds of systemic risks does it have to be looking for, and then I guess in theory creating scenarios that would track that that systemic risk scenario. But ultimately, I think this doubles back onto something I was saying before, which Paul mentioned, and which the last question asked, which is that you can create any scenario of systemic risk you want, which simulates these drastic recession-like conditions. And if the banks are adequately capitalized, they're adequately capitalized. So I'm not sure that it matters that the Fed is really precise in measuring scenarios that could generate systemic risk, but rather thinking through its sort of main and core job about whether the banking system is well capitalized. I think you should keep in mind that prior to the Biden administration, the FSOC did not designate climate change as a systemic risk. It's just so such a coincidence that, you know, uh, nine months after uh, they took office and Janet Yellen was Secretary of Treasury and they put all kinds of other uh, progressives uh, in, in the Treasury over, over the FSOC, that all of a sudden the FSOC uh, decides uh, climate change is a systemic risk and they, they need uh, all kinds of measures. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't a few years ago. Uh, I suspect if the administration changes in a few years, it won't, it won't be a systemic risk. I, I think it's uh, very much uh, a, back, a back doorway to put in an industrial policy without passing legislation. That's what I think it is. I think, I think any thinking person would, should see it, would see it that way, but maybe not. Can I just add something about the FSOC that I think is really important? So what, what Paul says it, it is right, but it's, it's, I think it's important to recognize that the FSOC was created that way by design, right? So the FSOC is housed within the Treasury Department, and the Treasury Secretary is, a, is, is part of the you know, executive ca cabinet, right? The, the Treasury Secretary is directly responsive to the president, and so the FSOC's policies and priorities are going to shift with the administration, and that presents certain challenges. For example, the FSOC is going to ramp up its quest to find systemically risky activities and institutions during certain administrations, and it's going to dial that back in other administrations. And it, you know, it didn't have to be that way. So at the same, around the same time that the FSOC was created, the UK Parliament created the Financial Policy Committee, right? So the FPC is the analog to the FSOC, and that body sits within the central bank, right? So that is a less inherently politicized institutions. So you can think that it's good or bad to have the macroprudential authority more responsive to the executive, but certainly the FSOC is, and that's unavoidable if the Treasury Secretary helms it. Systemic risk is mentioned 39 times in the Dodd-Frank Act. It is never defined anywhere in the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, do we have any more questions in the room? I think I saw Bert over here. <laughs> And uh, name and attribution, please. Yeah, uh, Bert Ely, uh, uh, adjunct scholar here at Cato and an independent financial consultant. Um, the question is going to focus on environmental risk. Uh, to the extent that there are losses that come out of that, it ultimately is a credit risk. 
uh, that uh, something is built that, uh, uh, you know, let's say a power station that uh, uh, turns out not to be uh, in compliance uh, with uh, uh, air pollution requirements, the plant has to be shut down. That means someone takes a loss. And that would be a, a credit risk. So I would suggest that when we look at the environmental piece of ESG, we realize that the ultimate risk is credit risk that some lender and some investor someplace has taken a, a loss if, for instance, a power plant has to be shut down before the end of its pr productive life. So my question is this. To what extent are the financial markets uh, doing a good job of incorporating in the interest rates they, they charge uh, the, the risk, the credit risk that's associated with uh, a particular uh, uh, project. And to carry that one step further, to what extent uh, uh, is that credit risk ultimately reflected in the, for banks in the uh, uh, deposit insurance premium, the supposedly risk-sensitive uh, deposit insurance premiums that the FDIC charges? Bottom line is, how well is the risk being, is the credit risk associated with environmental risk being priced in the U.S. economy? Bert, um, I'll, I'll start, take this on to start with. So I think you've seen over the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, a number, number of cycles in uh, Texas, Louisiana, as the price of oil went up and the price of oil went down and firms went bankrupt. And I, I think... Uh, you know, some banks some banks defaulted from their energy loans. Uh, then they learned their lesson, and it was hard for energy companies to get loans again. And time went on, and people forgot the last crisis. And so, you know, bankers aren't you know perfect at this, but bankers certainly understand that lending to energy uh, firms can be risky. And and there's lots of things that can cause the risk. It can be it can be an environmental uh, stoppage, as you as you mentioned, or it could be the price of oil goes goes negative as it did in the in the COVID crisis and everybody stopped fracking and there was all concern about huge defaults in the oil and gas industry, which I don't think materialized. But yeah, so it's not like it's not like credit risk in the energy sector is unknown and, and been dealt with. And uh, I, I don't I don't think any I think everybody views that as at sometimes a profit opportunity, at sometimes a, 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 a cost a cost center when they when they they screwed up. But I don't think they think of it as a systemic risk, uh, at least not before the the FSOC report. I mean, um, that would be my opinion. Yeah, I think uh, climate risk is starting to be priced in. I said in my opening remarks, you, you can look at various academic studies suggesting 100 basis point, 200 basis point bond spreads. Or, uh, companies or issuers that are exposed to physical or transition risk. Um, I think there's a question of whether that's sufficiently high, or whether uh, bank credit is being still underpriced based on uh, economic and climate projections. Um, I don't think it is being reflected in positive insurance premiums because uh, right now uh, I think bank uh, supervisory assessments are agnostic to climate risks. Um, and, and the last thing I will say, recognizing your question focused on credit risk, don't forget market risk and operational risk, both of which I, I think in the climate context could develop into systemic risks in the future. Um, I think we have time for one more quick question. Um, I see another question over here in the back. And remember, please, uh, 
introduce yourself and speak into the mic. Thanks. Thanks, Bonnie Wachtel. Uh, by the way, according to Warren Buffett, there's no need to price in any of this into insurance premiums. He hasn't seen any reason. My question goes to Jeremy, and thank you very much for coming today. I want to pick up on the fact that you were referring back to climate scientists, because I don't think there's anything more disturbing in the progressive agenda here than the corruption of science, which, as Paul pointed out, seems to rest on unvalidated models and suppression of dissent. Now, if you don't believe that's the case, please just take it as a hypothetical, because I'm sure you're not in favor of politically or culturally balanced science. Can you think of any way to deal with that, you know, foundational bedrock problem? Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not going to debate the science here. Um, uh, I, I hope and trust that our agencies are uh, doing impartial uh, analysis on, on that front, and I, I'm not going to get into the, the science. Um, all right. Well, with that, I think we're going to end uh, right on time, which is very exciting. Um, we're going to now take a 15-minute break. Uh, please join us back at 11.30 for um, the panel discussion, ESG and Corporate Governance, moderated by Ellen Myers, a reporter at CQ Roll Call. Thanks to all of you. Um, thank you very much to this panel. Hope everyone enjoyed it as much as I did.